to the Sales Influence Podcast, where we talk about finding the why and how people buy. I'm your host, Victor Antonio. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for lending me your ears. And if you're watching me on video, thank you for lending me those beautiful eyeballs. Today, I have the one and only AI himself. This man, by the way, I'm going to set this up differently because this guy is going to be so modest. He's going to be so understated that he's not going to really want to talk about himself. But I'm telling you right now, AI stands for actually intelligent. And Anthony Inarino is now joining us on the Sales Influence Podcast. Anthony, welcome to the show, man. How you doing? Welcome to the uh, In the Arena podcast where I interview you. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be quite a turnaround, wouldn't it? That would it? be. That would be. Anthony, let them know who well, you thanks are. Thanks for having me. Let them know who you are, man. I am a speaker. I'm a writer. I, I'm an author of a number of books. I do a lot of the same things Victor does. Uh, we share the same haircut. So we have a lot in common here. Both do podcasts, both do YouTube videos. I started selling when I was about 15 years old, um, working for a charity, asking people to put on a bike-a-thon. So not an easy ask to get people to do the work of putting on a bike-a-thon somewhere. But I was the only person that got two groups to do that in my first week on the job. So I ended up being pretty good at that. I ended up in the family business so I could play rock and roll at night. So that's what you do. You try to work in the family business so you can do what you really want to do, which is rock and roll. And what's better than rock and roll? And the answer is nothing. Nothing is better than rock and roll. It's still true. <laughs> so I, I went out to Los Angeles. I started playing music there. I got a job in a staffing firm. And I ended up in sales instead of operations because my manager, he had three Los Angeles natives as salespeople. And the thing about Los Angeles natives, and if you're listening and you're in Los Angeles, I apologize, but not very much. Uh, they're lazy. I mean, they grew up going to the beach and to the mountains. And so they were always sort of sneaking out and being gone, pretending to be selling, but they really weren't. And at some point he fired all of them and he was looking over the reports and I had won all of the new accounts for that particular branch. And he couldn't understand how a guy with hair all the way down to his waist was winning accounts when his professional salespeople were not winning any accounts. And uh, he asked me, you know, what do you do to get these accounts? And I said, I call people and I ask them if I can come and see them. And some of them say yes. And then I ask them if they have any problems and some of them do. And then I ask if I can help with their problems and they give me orders and I take care of them. They're my clients. And he said, that's beautiful. <laughs> I love what you said. I mean, I, it was a total trap, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I didn't want it to be a beautiful answer. I wanted it to be factual, and then I could get back to doing my job. And he said, look, I want you to cut your hair and go into outside sales. And he might as well have said, I want you to become a psychopathic axe murderer and go on a killing spree in the greater Los Angeles area. Like, I did not want to be a salesperson. I thought they're smarmy, manipulative, selfish, they make people buy things that they don't need. Who would want to do that? It's a terrible job. And he, he caught me with that. And he, and he said, uh, is that how you want all those accounts? And I was like, no, of course that's not how I won those accounts. That's, I, I did everything the opposite of that. And I basically cried and whined long enough that he finally said to me, you work for me and you're going to do the job that I need you to do, not the job that you want to do. And if you don't, I'm going to fire your ass and send you back to Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> and I was like, that is super harsh. Thanks for the motivation, right? I mean, Thanks for the motivation, team. Yeah, great motivation. Yeah. I'm, the, I'm the only employee that got a 7% pay raise in that year. Mm -hmm. No one else got it. They, they froze raises, but I got a raise. A indication I was a good salesperson even then. And uh, the, 
The thing when someone makes you a salesperson is it sort of changed your intention. So my intention was I'm out trying to help people. And then my intention was I'm trying to get people to buy things. <laughs> and it changed completely how I approached it. It took a little while for that to wear off and I went back to doing what I was doing. In about six months, I won the largest account, uh, one on the, the western half of the United States. It was a uh, $10 million a year deal for five years. Nice. And I didn't win it by myself. I had to bring a lot of people in to help me with that. But after that, I got hooked on this. I had a brain surgery shortly after I won that account. And I came back to Columbus, Ohio, and I grew my family business from $3 million to $50 million. And then in 2010, I started writing the sales blog and... I sat down with my wife and said, I'm going to start speaking and publishing books and doing all kinds of other things because that's what I'm called to do. And it's just worked out that way from, from there until now. Yeah, tell me about the sales blog because that's, that's an amazing accomplishment. Yeah, I, I, I literally told her on December 28th, 2009, I said, I'm going to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and I'm going to write a blog post every single day like Seth Godin does. I was watching Seth Godin uh, carefully. And I said, within a year, I'll be keynoting sales conferences. And I threw out this amount of money that I thought I'd be able to get. That was a lot of money. And uh, she said, I have no idea what you're talking about. But, you know, I love you and I support you anyway. <laughs> and the part about the money was pretty good. So uh, it the, took me 10 our months. Our wives are very similar, man. Very, sim very similar. <laughs> yeah. Like, Why are you here and not somewhere else doing, like, making money? Correct. And... Uh, so I started writing every day, and 10 months in, I got my first call where somebody said, we want you to speak at our keynote. We want wow. you to do, give the keynote at our sales conference. It took about 10 months. I missed 13 days in 2010 when I went to Tibet. And other than that, I've written and published every day since December 29th, 2009. Why, why did you? I, I didn't, wait. 4,040 posts. By the way, that's impressive. But now, now, now you've just piqued my curiosity. Why did you go to Tibet? Uh, because somebody, some friends of mine said, we're going to go to Tibet and uh, we're going to look around and we're going to go uh, out to uh, base camp on Mount Everest. And I said, that sounds like a cool trip. And uh, I said, all right, I'll go. <laughs> and so we, we went and I, I saw the Patala Palace where all the Dalai Lamas are mm -hmm. still, you know, in tombs inside. And and the the thing about Mount Everest from Lhasa, Tibet, it's a three-day drive. Not not a very good experience across the Chinese countryside. So there's no restaurants. Everything is dirty. You're going to get food poisoning for sure. <laughs> like there's no chance that you can evade it. I did, in fact, because I brought a box of uh, Power Bars with me. So everybody else was eating at restaurants and getting sick. And I was like, nope, Power Bars only. It's a long way out to Mount Everest, but it's a super, super cool. I mean, you're never going to see anything like it again. Mm. And if you get to base camp, you're already exhausted. And just walking up a hill, you're exhausted. And then you look at the rest of it from the 17,000 feet view that you're at. You still have to walk up 12,000 more if you go to the top of Everest. And you look at it and you're like, I'm okay right here. Yeah, I'm good. I, I'm I, don't, good. I, I don't think I need to go up to the same... Uh, altitude that a plane flies at. Yeah, okay. not doing that. That's a long walk up. Hey, uh, So I saw enough, and it was a good experience, though. It was super cool to see that, different culture altogether. That's cool. What was your big takeaway from that? Like, you know, mentally, spiritually, what was your big takeaway from that? The people in Tibet are beautiful, lovely people, and they have nothing, and they need nothing. And that's why they're happy. 
is because there's no longing. There's nothing that they want that they don't already have. And, and that's a part of their, you know, Buddhist religion as well as the culture of the whole place. Mm. What do you think of the, you know, it's an interesting, I know that we're going to get back to the leadership, we're going to talk about sales, but I think it's fascinating to kind of try to segue into the thought process. You see a lot of these, I'll just call them gurus out there. And they're always talking about, you know, get the Lamborghini, get the Mercedes, you know, get the get the big house, you know, the the, the wants and the needs, right? Mostly wants, you know, uh, you know, do that juxtaposition of those two realities right there for me. Yeah, you know what? It's it's okay to want uh, material things, but it, it's wrong to want material things if you think it says something about who you are, and if you think it's what's going to lead to happiness. So those are two very, very different types of success. And when you think about success, financial success is important. I, I would never tell somebody like, no, don't worry about financial success and don't worry about having, uh, I mean, you, you live in a world where we, it's, it's uh, consumer and materialistic and it's okay to want and to have nice things, but it doesn't, it's not what makes you happy. I mean, I am never happier. I get up at 4.30 in the morning to write. I'm never happier than that first two hours of my day when I sit down and I write. As soon as I wake up, I write a thousand words. Mm. And then I go down to the gym. And I mean, and, and I'm completely content. If that's all I had to do, that would be, that would be fine. And I would be happy doing that for a very long time. Your happiness has to come from something else. It's something deeper than the Lamborghini. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny because a Lamborghini sort of says shallow already. Like, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't have one if you want one, but. It, it doesn't. It doesn't show depth. Yeah, I'm. Al I'm always interested. You know, I, when I first started out, you know, again, our family was poor, so you know, we wanted to make money, right? Because money is essential. I always help. Me too. I, I said, people, money doesn't buy you happiness, but it buys you options, which is what we all want. And but it, but when I'm with you on the it doesn't buy you happiness. Anyway, I just thought I'd throw that out there because I hear all these gurus talking to showing the big houses, the whole thing. When you were poor, what did you eat? Rice and beans. Yeah. Okay. So I ate uh, hamburger helper. Okay. I mean, that, that's what we had. And so that, that's, I, I, I don't know, you know, Hector Lamarck? I do not. From Primerica. Okay. So he's built a 12,000 person sales force for Primerica. Wow. Total hustler, straight up hustler of the first order. And he put something about uh, success on his Twitter last week. And I said, I hate to argue with you, but that's not the number one factor for success. The number one factor for success is and always will be hunger. Mm. That's it. Like uh, uh, hunger. That's what does it. So you don't have any choice but to make money because you're hungry. Right. Like, you don't want to eat rice and beans forever. You might like to have a little more variety than that. Oh, absolutely. I, but I, I still will never eat hamburger helper, macaroni cheese, <laughs> or fish sticks. Like I will not eat any of those foods. I remember hamburger helper. You know, I always talk that, that people ask me, Victor, what motivated you? You know, you come out of the hood, do all these things. What motivated you? I always say fear. And people have this quizzical look on their face. And I'm thinking, well, that's what motivates me. I, the fear of not, you know, of having to eat rice and beans for the rest of my life. Well, you know, what, talk to me about fear of being a driver in a positive way. Fear is both. It can be a negative uh, or it can be a positive. It just depends. I mean, I, I grew up in a, an apartment complex. So you and I have a very similar, you know, story and backgrounds. And it was a violent place. I mean, I, I was walking to the store by myself. I'm like 12 years old. Five guys surround me, and and Steve Buckley just starts punching me. Like I've never met this guy in my life, but I was walking by, and that was enough for for a fight to start. Mm. Uh, and I mean, that, there was just a, a lot of uh, violence, a lot of people that were you know difficult personalities. Uh, 
the thing about fear is that people who have nothing to lose don't have a lot of fear because they have nothing to lose. So they can do things that you or I might not want to do. And uh, part of the fear is the, the disability that you have when you can't take action. But when you grew up, I guess where I grew up and probably where you did, you had to step into that fear. Like uh, I, I learned very quickly that uh, not waiting for someone to punch me and just going ahead and punching them first mm. and getting the, getting the fight started ended the fight a lot sooner. Gotcha. Not because I was a good fighter. I was a terrible fighter. But when you fight back, then people are like, nah, I'm, I want to bully somebody that I can bully. Right. You know, and this guy's going to keep fighting no matter what happens. And so you, you learn to just deal with the fear. I think you have to learn to deal with it faster when you live in an, a, an environment like that. And, and then I started working when I was 13 and I was always around adults after that. And you just learn how to move in, a, in, a, in places where there's people. And I think that's super, super helpful. I have, uh, the, you've got kids, I, I've got kids. My three kids, I continue to tell the same thing. The greatest adversity you've had in your life is that you haven't had any adversity. Yeah. So, <laughs> and that's it. So it's like, you're, you're wired different because you, you grew up in a big house. You've all had cars from the minute you turned 16. Nice cars, by the way. You went to good schools. You know. And and now they got the pandemic, so I'm like, finally, yeah. Now you get some, something, something. Now you get some adversity. <laughs> we're we're living in Miami, a nice area of Miami. We have our you know a lake in front of us, and my sons were running around telling people we live in the hood. I'm like, we don't live in the. What do you want? We don't live in the hood. It's not the hood. I'm like, I'll show you the hood. This is not the hood. Uh, anyway, let, let, so anyway, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show, before besides the fact that we're good friends and I really like you. Uh, uh, is that you're like that understated, you know, stealth bomber, you know, type of salesperson. And I think, you know, you're like a contradiction to the, the, the stereotype that's out there about salespeople. And so, you know, would you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? I, I've used, um, what is it, 16 personalities. I don't know if you ever have looked at that site. So it's a, it's a very complicated version of Myers-Briggs that's very, very complete. And so I am uh, an ENFJ. So I, I am, I do register as an extrovert because I do get um, energy from other people. Mm -hmm. I, I do. So that, that part is true. But I, I feel like I'm more of an ambivert. I'm very, I'm just barely over the line on extrovert. Mm. And uh, I, when I do something like, I don't know how you feel like when you speak on a big stage, when I'm done, and I've done a full day with a group of people, I want to just go be by myself. Like, I don't want to go out to dinner or drinks or anything like that. I'm done. I've used all my energy, and now I'm not getting energy from other people. I'm getting drained by them. So uh, I know that. But as a salesperson, you know, the idea that you have to be an extrovert isn't true. The research shows that ambiverts do the best, mm -hmm. the ones that can, can be right on the sort of middle line of that. Those are the ones who tend to test the best. Under the 16 personalities, I'm what's called a protagonist. Mm. My guess is you probably would be too. So I believe that I'm in charge of every part of my life and, and I'm the hero in the story that I'm writing. And so that's just some of us get wired that way. I mean, it's all about your childhood and all the things that happen to you. From a sales perspective, um, there's a lot to be said for being an introvert. So you do have to talk to people. So you can't be the kind of introvert that's afraid to engage with people. But it, and I would say that's more conflict aversion or uh, a strong need to be liked. Yeah. You know, which is, which is it's, it's okay to be likable, mm -hmm. 
but it's not okay to need to be liked. Those are very, very different ideas. And you see a lot of people write about sales saying like, you don't need to worry about being liked. Well, you damn well better be mm-hmm. liked because people <laughs> can buy from somebody else. You're like, yeah, but I'm really smart. Yeah, other people are really smart too. Congratulations. You know, you're one of the smart people, but there's a lot of other ones. The things that extroverts do well in sales, though, is leave room and they're interested in other people and they listen and and they give you a lot of space where uh, extroverts sometimes want to be the center of attention and they want the attention so much that you make it more difficult for people when you don't recognize that you're there to serve them and they need to be talking and you need to be sitting back and making sure that they're noticing that you're looking at their mouth while they talk and taking notes about what they say and reiterating what they say in a way that they understand. I get what you want. I understand what you need. I understand how I have to tailor it for you and all the things that make it easy for somebody to buy. So introverts and people who have the ability to sort of just sit back and, and I think have an easier time. And I think people need to find comfort in that. Was it yeah. was was it hard for you, Anthony? It maybe it wasn't. You know, to find your authentic self. And let me define what I mean by that. Is that you know we have the public persona and the personal persona, and sometimes we it, the personal persona is who we are, obviously. But we're, we're trying to cast it in a professional light without losing yourself. If that makes any sense. Was that hard for you to do? You know, talk to me about that. You don't, I, I think that there's something that we do that, that gives you a different sort of view of this. So when you write every day, um, like I do, you, you start to understand what you think and what you know and what you believe because writing really is uh, thinking. So I've spent an hour thinking every day for 10 years and organizing my thoughts and revising my thoughts and having other people tell me different views of my thoughts and my ideas and my beliefs and their experience about it. So you start to get an idea of what, what it is that you really believe and what you really think and what you really know. So that helps you, you do that. But when you start speaking, and I, I started speaking probably way later than you, but uh, I, I started in Toastmasters uh, when I was like 38 years old. And I can speak because I can tell stories and because I can entertain people. But that wasn't my voice. So that, that was me knowing that I could go in and manipulate an audience mm-hmm. and have them enjoy the seven minutes that you get in Toastmasters. It took a while for me to realize the, the, the authentic voice is, what change do you want to see in the world? What, what do you want to enable other people to be able to do that they can't do? What difference do you want to make while you're here? And so that, that's a different thing. It took a while to get to that voice. I'm going to say it took probably five years before okay. that voice showed up in a way that I could recognize it. And then, you know, you and I have talked about speaking before and you are a tremendous speaker. I, I've had this conversation with Jeb five times, best speaker on the outbound stage. Thank you. Nothing against all the others. You're just a different level. And there's something about your authenticity that's so good that people are immediately like drawn to you. I'm pitching you. No, now no. Because it took, it's, it's, see you thank you. But it took a while to and, find that. Like you said, it took a while. There was a journey there because you there's this leap of faith that you have to come to, right? Where you have to say, you know what, I'm gonna do it my way, you know. But but I love what you just said, and I, I, I just this is just brilliant. So I just want you just said, think, know, and believe. I've never broken those apart, Anthony. I never really thought about it that way. What you think, what you know, and what you believe, you know, going on that one. It's it, it's different. I mean, they're they're all different, oh. and I mean, sometimes you know things, and when people ask me like, how do you know that? 
And it's like, well, I, I built a $50 million business and uh, th- this is what, what I know from actually having these experiences. Sometimes I think things and uh, it turns out that they're, they're not right, but I think them, you know, <laughs> so thoughts are different. Beliefs are those things that are just core and, and, and you start to develop those and you have to do that as a speaker. But I'm a different speaker than you are. I'm, I'm, I do not come out with the same energy that you have and I'm, I'm not as uh, flamboyant as you are, but you're Puerto Rican. So, you know, it, it, it comes with a territory that you're going to be a little bit of a showman right out of the gate. He's shaking his head. No, but he's saying yes. <laughs> so stereo- so stereotypical. Uh, you know, but the what what are the I only know that I could say that because I know I could say that. That's a that's a no. But it's it's like I walk out on stage, I have to be who I am. Because mm-hmm. if I try to do Victor, people mm-hmm. are gonna be like, that doesn't look like he's that that's not who he is. And you would see that that's not who I am. So you have to show up and be who you are. And if you if you want to think about either sales or leadership or, you know, the performance that we do when we're we're trying to get results in business, and it is a performance. I mean, the the sales call is a performance. The presentation is a performance. The negotiation is a performance. It's all a performance. You just have to get comfortable and be who you are. Because if you try to be something that you're not, it, it shows up as uh, a conflict for the other person. Like, I can't trust what I'm seeing because I don't believe it's true. So you just have to be the best version of you because that's all you got to work with. You know, it's funny because we know speakers. So like, um, you know, we see a lot of speakers and we've seen a lot of speakers and you could almost tell immediately, give me five minutes into their presentation, if that, and I can tell if they're being authentic or they just read something, learned something and just plastering it, trying to give you, as you say, the show and the facade. What, let, let's shift over because I want to talk about, you know, you're working on a project, right? I think you're working on a new book. Is that correct? Book four. Yeah. What's the, uh, can, can I ask you, what's the premise of the book, the theme of the book topic? The, the, well, the premise is something that all of us come to when you write three sales books in a row and you go out and you start helping, you know, big companies try to change their sales results. And uh, you find out that the leadership needs more help than the salespeople. Mm. I mean, that, that, that's what you end up learning. Uh, Weinberg learned it and wrote um, Sales Management Simplified after spending time with salespeople. Um, my book is about how you lead growth. And so it, it's how do you actually create net new revenue, incremental revenue so that you can grow your business and all of the things that it takes to do that. So that, that's the project that I'm in the middle of right now. So what do, you, what, do you, what do you, you know, I know when you're putting together a book, there's always the, the framework. So what's the framework of the book like? You know, what are the main columns of this book? So there's, uh, I'll, I'll go just through a couple. So the beginning of it is, you know, what what does a leader even do? So you have to decide what leadership is. You have to talk something about vision. You have to, you can't get away from it. You have to tell people that you have to have a dream. You have to have a vision. You have to have something that you want that you can share with other people so they can get on board with you and know where they're going and where you're taking them and who they're going to become down that path. It's a lot about culture at the beginning, um, and that's always something worth talking about. And it's also about the structures and systems and processes that allow you to do that. And I, I don't think that people spend enough time thinking about how complex sales is and how you enable a team. And I know this because they do the same thing without making very many changes. In in the book, I have a list of the methodologies that a B2B sales organization would need. And my running list right now is 20. Hmm. 
there's 20 methodologies. And so there's competencies that you have to have that we don't train and that we don't talk about and that we don't provide tools for. And so salespeople are left completely unarmed in a world that's changed so dramatically that it's more difficult to, to win deals than ever. Like, for example, I, in Ether Lunch, I wrote a, a short methodology for people to use to build consensus. There's no consensus building methodology anywhere. So if you don't know how to get the stakeholders into the room and how to figure out what their conflicts are and who wants what and why they want it, it's really, really hard to get to a deal. In fact, most deals just die because you can't get 13 people together to say, yes, this is the right thing to do. So there's all these competencies that you have to worry about. And there has to be some structure, which I've always called cadence, or you could call it an, an operating model, about all the things that you have to do as a sales leader to make sure that you're able to create growth. Um, all of it just is sort of built around, there's got to be a, a number of accountabilities that are kept for you to be able to create growth. Talk to me about the, you mentioned culture. Uh, let's go into that a little bit, because I think it, it is true that I, I've had sales managers who establish a very strict culture with very yes and no's, do's and don'ts, right? And there's also some flexibility. Talk to me about culture, how you see it from your point of view. I mean, there has to be standards. So I, I think a good leader always raises the standards. I mean, that's it. That's what good leaders do. So if, if you want better performance, you have to say this behavior and this result is no longer adequate. Now it has to come up here. It has to be a different level. So I'm, I'm going to raise the standards. There's a few things, though, that you need to do before that if you want to be able to enable people to grow and then to grow revenue. And the first thing is, and, and you said, you know, you can almost think of a, the autocratic leader that you're describing, that it's black and white, mm -hmm. you know, not a lot of room for conversation. <clears throat> what happens in environments where someone is using force or uh, pressure in any way to get results is that you lose psychological safety. Mm -hmm. And so the foundation of every good culture has to be on psychological safety. I belong, I'm allowed to express my opinion. I'm allowed to argue with what's true and what's right because I'm safe here. If I'm challenged with something, I'm allowed to bring it up. I don't have to hide those kinds of things. So you want people to be psychologically safe because if they're not, and if they don't feel like they have a sense of belonging and that they're safe there, then they can't do good work and they start looking for someplace else where they can find a way to be safe. So you need to create that first. And I've had uh, my own sales force for a very long time and we can argue for as long as anybody wants to argue. I mean, and I'm, I'm happy to listen to the arguments and uh, it's good to listen to the arguments. I learn things, I make changes and adjustments. So as a leader, you don't want to be cut off from reality. Like, no, just go make your number. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, our competitor now has dropped their price by 30% and they're starting to take market share from us. How do we respond? You just go do your job. No, you better be able to give them a better answer than that. And you better hope that they come and tell you what they're struggling with. The thing that psychological safety does that, that enables everything else is it allows you to hold people accountable. So if, if there's accountability and there's not psychological safety and I can't tell you that I'm struggling, I can't ask you for your help, I can't describe what my reality looks like and have you help me with it, then I'm going to go somewhere else. And here's the thing I would say about culture, Victor. It has to be better on the inside than it is outside. That's it. So I, I have to be better and safer and more secure and have more opportunity inside here than somewhere else outside. And so as a leader, you've got to create that. 
And that's your job is to create that type of a culture. And you might have to do it inside a bubble, inside a bigger culture that might not look like that. But for a sales manager, you can have the culture that you want for your team. That's strictly your responsibility. Yeah, I mean, so it's a new concept. That's why I say I like talking to you because you just kind of reframe my thinking. The So this inside culture has to be better than the outside culture. I, I get that. Just give me more on that, Anthony. Just peel that back, as they say. When a, when a culture, I don't know if you've ever been a part of a culture like this. I have. I've, I've been in organizations where the, the culture starts a downward spiral because of a, a leader. And it just starts to get more pressure and more flailing around trying to find a way to get a result and, and not doing the things that they need to do and just trying to, to do something to survive. When the leader's in survival mode, and they're afraid, and they don't have the psychological safety, that immediately gets transferred to their team. And then you step onto this, and it is better outside. And then people start going, I got to go somewhere else. I had a, a client in Los Angeles. They brought in a new leader. The only thing he knew was more activity is better than less activity. Mm. That, that was his primary operating philosophy. Well, that's okay if you have an activity problem. and <laughs> That's mm -hmm. the right answer. But if you don't have an activity problem and you have an effectiveness problem and you just ask for more activity, it doesn't produce better results. You just give more prospective clients a poor experience that causes them not to buy. And he got so angry and so upset as he started to feel threatened. He started to threaten people. And the best salespeople that he had immediately found other places to go. Right. I mean, and that's what happens. It's better out there somewhere than it is in here. So, so, and you can't let that, you can't let that flip on you. The, so, when you have managers, you know, we've we've seen this, right? People who are put in the Peter principle, they're put in positions that they shouldn't be in, right? The point of incompetency. What happens? With, and sometimes I blame obviously the top leadership, but what do you say to these leaders who bring in managers to manage salespeople that really don't have the skill sets or the mindset really to manage salespeople? I mean. You know, is that what your book is about? Is that, I mean, do you understand? That's part of it, yeah. yeah. So the third, the third part of the culture um, that you have to recognize is that you, you have to be growth-focused, that the culture has to be growth-focused. But there's two types of growth, and so we tend to face one side that we like. We like grow revenue. But how do you get people who are where they are to grow revenue without having them grow? So you need everybody on your team to grow. And if you're a leader... You need your sales managers to grow. If your sales managers grow, then they can grow the salespeople. And the, the revenue attainment always comes from growing people and giving them better skills, better mindsets, better tools, more accountability, more help, more coaching, all those things that lead to the better sales. So I, I operate, uh, Victor, from a particular view. Uh, this is one of my beliefs. Inputs are more important than outputs. I mean, I, I would rather just see people working very, very hard on the inputs, making sure that they're incredibly effective in the sales conversation. If you get that much, the outputs are, Incredible. they're just the natural result of doing the right thing. Uh, in the pandemic, the first thing that happened to me was my email blew up, my uh, LinkedIn blew up, my phone blew up with text messages, and all the salespeople asked me the same <clears> question. Should I stop selling right now? <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> if, if you can help people when they're having good experiences and having a good time, then you can help them when they Absolutely. have a bad time. And in fact, you're obligated to go help them now. And they're like, yeah, but they're under a lot of stress. Yeah, but yeah, that's why they need your help, right? right and so the right thing to do 
is always the right thing to do. Like if you if your job is to help people get better results, well, now that they're having terrible results, like, well, I don't want to help them and bother them while they're having terrible results. Well, that's all you do as a salesperson is help people stop having the terrible result they're having and getting a better result. There you go. That's what you do. So now you have a wonderful opportunity to do that because everybody's having a terrible experience. And they're like, well, what do you say when you call them? Then it got really, really tactical. Right. Like, what, how, do you, how do you deal with the objections they're going to have? It's like the, the same way you do with all of their objections. Yeah. You recognize that it's a real concern. You address the concern and tell them they're better off dealing with it now than waiting and letting it get worse. And, and you, you just do the work. Thank you, Jeff. So I, w- I want to go back to the subject you just pointed out. You talked about, you know, you, if your people grow, your revenues grow, right? Duh, right? That's a, that's a duh moment. So why don't they do well, it? Yeah, so think, 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 think of it this way. So I got a business and I'm doing $22 million. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't change anything. I'm probably going to do $22 million next year, right? So the people that you have right now are capable of 22. If you grew them, they might not be capable of 24. They might be capable of 34 because they now have something else that they could do that they couldn't do before. If they were capable of getting you 34 doing what they were doing, you wouldn't have had 22. So that, that, that's, that's just reality. But what is it that holds managers back? I mean, it, this is what I guess I'm trying to maybe help you get into the psychology of if a manager's listening right now, a sales manager, and, and, and knows that growth equals growth on the personal side to the revenue side, why don't they do it? What holds them back, because, Anthony? Because they don't have the right structure. So the beginning of this is, like, if you don't, at the beginning of the year, sit down and decide what your vision is going to be and what you want from people, and if you don't have a vision for each person on your team, and you really have to think of it that way, mm. all of us have strengths and weaknesses. And you have to look at that and say, how do I help this one get better? Because this one that did $2 million, I can look at them and know if they had greater discipline and greater resourcefulness and a better control over commitment gaining, they could definitely do $8 million. Mm. Like I got to look and find those gaps and wow. do something about it. If that person was capable of doing that by themselves, they wouldn't need your help. But what a leader does, I mean, you've had a good leader at some point mm. in your life. That person wasn't like, Victor, you know what? Kind of a chump, mediocre. Mm-hmm. It'll be difficult for me to help. I'm just going to let you coast. So don't bother me too much. I won't bother you too much. We'll both just get along and everything will be great. And you're like, that was my favorite leader. Mm. He recognized I was a C minus and let me be a C minus. Right. No one ever says that. Correct. The, the, the leader that you love was like, Victor, look, man, what are you doing? What the hell are you doing, man? What is this? Like, this is not you. You're capable of way more than this. You got to raise your standard, man. Look at what you're doing. And you're like, damn, (laughs) wow, this guy's all over me. And why is he all over me? Because he sees something in you that you don't yet see in you. And then once you see it, then, then you become that. And that's the leader that you remember. So that's the leader that you have to be. You have to be the leader that looks at everybody and says, how do I help this one? go to the next level. I love that. And they don't even start there. And they don't start with just the recognition of if this group that did 22 uh, got to 22 doing what they're doing, I'm not getting to 34 by doing the same thing that we did. What do they need? And so the the book is going to have a whole bunch of love that. Uh, recommendations on I, some of those things. I, I love the the whole concept of having a vision for your individuals, right? And then you're going to back it up with here's some tools that you're going to need to probably get there. 
uh, who's the philosopher? Goethe or something says, treat a man as he is or a woman as he is and he will remain as he is. Treat him as he can and should be, he will become that what he can be. And I, and I really love the way you said that. And so managers listening right now, got to have a vision for your employees, got to give them the tools, right? And support. But more importantly, I like your psychological safety at the beginning. Make them feel safe, that they can try certain things and not be afraid to fail. And so when you're looking at, you know, the future of selling right now, because it's so, Anthony, you know it, I know it, it's complicated, it's getting more convoluted. People are throwing more tools at the system. Salespeople have less time but have to do more. Management people are just confused because some know how to use technology, some don't know how to use technology. Make sense of this mess that we're going through right now. Yeah, you know, I saw uh, somebody uh, in my community always sends me things about artificial intelligence. And and you've got a book of, over your right shoulder there about artificial intelligence. Um, I'm not concerned about technology. So one of the things that I think we've made as a, as a huge mistake for maybe 15 years now, maybe even longer, remember when uh, the CRM was supposed to increase everybody's sales mm-hmm. uh, effectiveness? Yes. It didn't. <laughs> okay, it didn't. And, and now we've got all these tools. We're automating part of the prospecting sequence. There's all these technologies that people believe they should have. And they spend a lot of time and a lot of money on technologies. I have one client who the sales stack for their team is uh, $6,300 a year hmm. per rep. Per rep, wow. That's per, per, per rep. And their results are not getting any better because they don't have a technology problem. That's not the problem that they have. They have a sales effectiveness problem. So right now where we are, somebody sent me this thing. It was the, uh, it was the editor of Wired Magazine talking about how wonderful AI is for salespeople because we can record your calls and we can tell you when you're talking too fast and when you're losing somebody and when the right time to pitch mm-hmm. would be. And uh, there's one company that does this and they said that cussing in the in the sales conversation actually increases your chances of winning. Whoa, 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 really? So come come on, so, yeah. share, share, so, come on, share. Who said that? Who said that? Do you know? uh, that was Gong IO. That was I thought their, so. Their, 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 yeah, that was, a, that picked that up. And, uh, and there, there's certainly something that Man. computers can do in pattern recognition, mm. but it's nothing like what humans can do in pattern recognition. So mm. I'm reading this thing about like, well, we can't take them to dinner. We can't take them to ball games. We're doing everything over Zoom. So it's creepy to have your calls recorded, but they're going to be able to give you these insights. And I'm looking at this going, you know nothing. I mean, you know nothing. Uh, I've sold all over the world. I've sold in the the five different countries that make up the United States because we're not one country. The Northeast corridor is different mm-hmm. than the Southern states, which is different than the Midwest, which is different from uh, Denver and Montana and Wyoming, which is different from the West Coast. They're different countries. So I'm thinking like it's going to tell me to slow down. Okay, my next cause to a C-level executive in New York City, mm. and I'm going to slow down because I talk too fast. Right. You don't talk fast enough for the C-level executive in New York City. They're like, Victor, get to the point here. I'm giving you four minutes. Go. You're like, okay. Then my next call is in New York City, and it's a guy who just moved from Alabama. And I'm going to now, I'm going to now go fast because he's in New York City, right? So I'm going to make that uh, generalization. And if you're talking to somebody in the South or from the South where there's this custom, we're courteous, right? We're going to take a little time and get to know each oh, no. other before mm. you start pitching me, before Passive I decide to do business with yep. you. 
I'm going to say, Victor, where, where's your family from? <laughs> what do your kids do? Like there, there's a whole thing that goes before you can even talk about business in the South, it moves a little bit slower. In, in the Midwest, there's a huge conflict aversion that, that you won't find in the Northeast corridor. I mean, it's just all different. And so, so the idea that technology is going to solve the problem that the human uh, being has evolved to solve, like we can look and tell that person just looked at their watch. Uh, what does that Agreed. mean? They have another meeting or does it mean that uh, I've lost their attention? Or their, their boss comes in and says, I'd like to see you after this. And you recognize that they're afraid of their boss and that you've got like a different person sitting in front of you than you did one minute ago. Human beings can in intuit all of that. And an algorithm isn't there yet. An algorithm is just brute force strength. Like you give me a program and say, if it's faster than this, you want to notice it. If it's slower than this, you notice it and get better at that over time. I'm not saying that pattern recognition can't be helpful, but out, out of context, it doesn't work. So instead of, of looking for technology to solve our problems, we have to help salespeople be better at the sales conversation. That's so, 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 so let me, uh, we'll begin to wrap up with this, but there's something that you... Go from technology, complexity, don't be dependent, not really going to help you in a lot of cases, but where it can, great. But break it down to the one thing that I know will help you. And you said this to me one time, we were talking, and you said, Victor, something about, this was kind of an Anthony way of saying it. You said, blah, 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 technology, it all comes down to first principles. Does. And I remember you said that. And so walk me through your perspective on first principles, because I really want people to take that away. That That's almost like a, it's foundational. Yeah, that's it. So, I mean, I think technology, when you look at it, you have to say, what does it serve or am I serving it in some way? Because we do a lot of technology things just to serve the technology. And we have a lot of technologies that are now created for a problem that didn't exist. You know, there's a, there's a lot of things that show up like that. The first principle is, like, I have to create value for this individual that's differentiated from other persons. That's it. So they're going to have a choice of this. I have to be more valuable to them. I have to be more helpful to them. I have to have more knowledge and insight and resources available to me to help them get these results. Everything after that is commentary. So we're having a sales conversation. That might be two calls if you're in B2C, maybe one in B2C. It might be 13. Or if you're selling a super complex sale, like let's say in a defense industry or something super technological, it might be four years worth of sales calls. I don't know. So those conversations happen. But your job is to create as much value for that other person, to give them what I would call a higher resolution lens through which to see their business and their future decisions. That's where you, all the action is. So you could do that. You could provide them with a higher resolution lens or open up the aperture. So they're, they're looking at it through this narrow thing and you open it up and go, now look at it in this context. Correct. That's called sense-making. So we're sense-making for the client. Now they get to understand why they can't have what they want, what their world really looks like. And they're like, wait, okay, so you showed me something about me and about my scenario I didn't know anything about until just now. So that's the person that shaped their thinking about this. And the sales conversation, if, if I, I can do that whole thing with no technology, but I can't do that whole thing with technology by itself without the sales conversation. So the, the, the thing that we get backwards is we think that the technology can replace, well, I'll, I'll say it the way that the editor of Wired said, um, this will help make salespeople more efficient. I don't want you to be efficient. I want you to be completely inefficient and win. 
Because mm -hmm. in human beings, I mean, and this, this is straight Stephen Covey, like the faster you go with human beings, the slower you go. Like right. if, if you want to, to influence people, spending less time with them and trying to transact it and say, well, I'll just give you this last story. I had a, a client who said to me, we're really happy about this pandemic. It's been great for our business. I'm like, how so? We don't have to travel to see clients anymore. And so now we're going to be way more efficient. And as soon as I hear efficient, I start to chafe. I'm like, <laughs> efficient. You don't want to be efficient. You want to win. If it takes you three more calls to win a $5 million annual deal, make the three more calls. Don't try to be efficient. Be inefficient. And he said, yeah, we're going to save so much money not having people travel. And I said, uh, I said, friend, <laughs> on, on inside sales, not a complex deal, fine. But if you don't show up in New York City at J.P. Morgan Chase, and I do, you aren't winning. I'm, you're not going to win. You're, you're I'm going to eat your lunch. I'm going to eat your lunch. Eat your lunch. There's, you are not <laughs> going to win that if I show up. Presence matters. This pandemic is going to end. This is not a new normal. It will never be a new normal. We've never had pandemics that lasted for centuries. They last for a couple of years. This one's going to go away. And people are going to be thrilled that you came to see them. <laughs> They're not going to go like, can we just do a Zoom meeting? They're going to be like, let's go to lunch. <laughs> Come spend time with us in our facility. I've got a client in Miami. If they visit a client and the client visits them, they have a 100% win rate. Mm-hmm. So I love what, it. what should you do if that's true? Keep doing it. Keep that's doing what I would it. do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Keep doing it. All right, Anthony, let these folks know where they can find out more about you and your books. TheSalesBlog.com. That's the best place. I publish there every day. And when you go there, sign up for the Sunday newsletter. That's my best work every week. And it'll show up in your inbox on Sunday so you can hit the ground running on Monday. There you go. And by the way, I'm going to encourage you to do that because his stuff is atypical. You know, a lot, a lot of uh, stuff I receive from other sales gurus, it's just, again, some regurgitated mess about the same thing. And I, what I like about your stuff is that it's not that you try to be a contrarian, because I don't think you're, that's your attempt. I think you really try to find different ways of looking at it, like yeah. you've just demonstrated during this conversation. So on that note, Matt, I thank you, Anthony, for being on the Sales Influence Podcast. And that is it for the Sales Influence Podcast. Leave us some feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, wherever you find me. And if you get a moment, check out the salesvelocityacademy.com. You know the deal. And as always, thank you for joining me. And remember, sell it ain't hard when you know how. Take care.